0: Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice.
1: Researchers are looking at hundreds of ways to treat and cure type 2 diabetes. Some are as simple as using exogenous insulin, and some require an extensive change in our understanding of cellular biology. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, president chief science officer of Partnership for Cures. Joining us to discuss diabetes in general and islet biology in particular is Carmela Evans Molina, MD, PhD, who is an assistant professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine, She holds a faculty appointment in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism and the Herman B. Wells Center for Pediatric Diabetes Research. Dr. Evans-Molina's research focuses on islet biology, molecular mechanisms of diabetic complications, and stem cell-based therapies for diabetes. Dr. Evans-Molina, welcome to ReachMD.
0: Thank you, Dr. Blim. It's very nice to be here.
1: So how prevalent is type 2 diabetes in America, and what are some of the trends and differences among different groups that have this disease?
0: Well, unfortunately, type 2 diabetes is an increasingly prevalent problem in our society today. Currently, in the United States, about 24 million people have been diagnosed with diabetes, and we think that about 55 million more are at risk to develop the disease. Type 2 diabetes makes up the majority of those numbers and accounts for about 90 to 95% of cases of diabetes in the United States.
1: When we talk about type 2 diabetes, is this all adults or are there now children with type 2 diabetes?
0: Well, unfortunately, because of this rising epidemic of type 2 diabetes that we see both in our country and worldwide, we're now seeing children that are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. What this means for us is that People are getting diagnosed younger. They've had the problem for a lot longer, and that means that they may be facing years and years more of the potentially devastating complications.
1: Tell us about how type 2 diabetes develops typically.
0: The classic thinking about type 2 diabetes, that was all a problem of insulin resistance at the peripheral tissues. So that meant that at the liver, the skeletal muscle, and adipose tissue, the body stopped responding to insulin. And that is a very big part of it. And we see people, as they gain weight, they become increasingly insulin resistant. But over the past probably 10 or so years, there's been a growing appreciation for the role of the beta cell found in the pancreas. That's the cell that secretes insulin in the pathogenesis of this disease.
1: Aren't there also some new genetic developments that are relevant to type 2 diabetes?
0: Yes. So we know that if you have a family member with type 2 diabetes, that places you more at risk to develop the disease. And so there's probably a lot of environmental factors that may account for that, but there's some very interesting genetic studies that would suggest that there are a number of diabetes susceptibility genes. Many of the ones that have been described, in fact the majority of them, actually track to the beta cell, which we sort of take as evidence that it's really a susceptible beta cell that's unable to account for this problem of insulin resistance that allows type two diabetes to develop.
1: So tell us a little bit more about that. What do you mean by a beta cell that isn't able to respond properly?
0: So in the initial phases of disease, when insulin resistance starts, the beta cell is actually uh, quite good at adapting to that problem. So beta cells may grow in size, you may actually make new beta cells, and they'll start to secrete more and more insulin to try to overcome that peripheral insulin resistance. But unfortunately, at some point, Along that process, the beta cell really fails to be able to compensate anymore. It becomes exhausted. A number of stress responses occur in the beta cell. You actually lose beta cell mass, and that's probably what signals the onset of someone having clinically apparent type 2 diabetes.
1: When this happens, are the cells themselves shutting down, or are they still working at that higher level? They're just not able to go any higher than that.
0: Well, actually, if you look very closely, it's probably... At the point where the diabetes becomes apparent to your physician, the beta cells are actually failing at that point, and you might see insulin levels in the bloodstream actually fall. And so the beta cell has really done all it can do, and these various stress pathways get activated within the cell. The cell doesn't function as efficiently anymore, and then you can actually get cell death, and that correlates with the loss of beta cell mass that we see in advanced type 2 diabetes. And it's actually estimated that at the time that we diagnose a new patient with type 2 diabetes, they've probably lost about 50% of their beta cell mass.
1: Is there any work being done in early diagnosis for type 2 diabetes so we might be able to head this off before we lose beta cell mass?
0: Absolutely. And I think really at the level of the community, and there's a lot of effort going in to try to identify those who are at risk. A lot of communities have incorporated screenings. Now hemoglobin A1c is a diagnostic criteria. We can use and level greater than or equal to 6.5 to make the diagnosis of diabetes. And then people are also starting to extrapolate back and say that at certain hemoglobin A1C levels, you may be actually pre-diabetic. So those finger sticks can be done very easily in the community, at health fairs, et cetera, might help us identify those patients who are on their way to developing type 2 diabetes. Because we know if we can catch those people, we can make lifestyle or dietary interventions that we can actually prevent them from becoming type 2 diabetic.
1: Are there other things that we can do for beta cells that are in stress and type 2 diabetes medicines or other things besides lifestyle changes?
0: Yes. So actually, there is a lot of research that's been put into that field, and there are a number of maneuvers that may actually allow the beta cell to rest and even restore function or maybe even restore some of that lost beta cell mass. Uh, And I'll give you a couple examples. There have been studies that have shown that if you treat newly diagnosed patients with insulin as compared to some of the other medications that actually instruct the beta cell to produce more and more insulin, like sulfonylureas, you allow that beta cell to rest. And then if you withdraw the insulin, you can actually see newly diagnosed patients go into a sort of remission from their disease. So something about just giving it a, the beta cell time to relax, restore normal function, makes it more efficient in being able to do its job of producing insulin. Along those same lines, some orally active medications have been studied in this regard. DPP-4 inhibitors have been shown in some animal models to maybe have anti-apoptotic effects at the beta cell, so they actually prevent them from dying. Those studies have not been repeated to a large degree in people. And then finally, drugs like the PPAR gamma agonist, which we studied a lot in our laboratory, have been shown to have a number of beneficial effects as well.
1: And what are some of the things that we're researching now that might make an impact in the future?
0: Well, I think that if you pay close attention to what the drug companies are studying, everyone is looking for the type of treatment that would be beta cell sparing or actually improve beta cell function because many feel that that's really what the future should hold for diabetes treatment. I mentioned the PPAR gamma agonist, and although those medications may have beneficial effects on the beta cell, There have been a number of recent safety concerns that have limited their widespread use in a lot of people with type 2 diabetes. The concerns about safety have to be balanced with the effect to perhaps improve beta cell function, and that's a challenge that I think the drug companies are really facing now to be able to bring new treatments to the market.
1: Do you see a time when part of the strategy will be this cycling on and off of insulin for type 2 diabetics?
0: Potentially. That's not usually an attractive option for most newly diagnosed patients though because they've just gotten the diagnosis of diabetes and then you approach them about potentially injecting insulin multiple times a day and that's really a lot for a newly diagnosed person to be able to kind of handle and jump on board with that type of treatment plan. I would say though when I've done it for somebody who has really high blood sugars at the outset of their disease I can see that once you bring the blood sugars down and once you allow the beta cells some time to rest, that they will have better outcomes further down the road. That's just one person's experience, though, and I think that things like this need to be studied in a fairly rigorous manner to be able to know exactly what is the best thing to do for the beta cell in type 2 diabetes treatment.
1: And just for our physician-listening as they're thinking about this. So how long would you have somebody on insulin, and then for how long does it seem to have a beneficial effect?
0: Well, the particular study that I looked at, I think really only treated the patients with insulin at the outset for a period of a few months, maybe, and then withdrew the insulin. Then they were able to actually see a remission from the diabetes for upwards of around a year, I believe. Obviously, I think if you can take that newly diagnosed patient and you can start to make some lifestyle modifications, even just the studies would suggest losing a very small amount of weight can have dramatic differences in their glucosomeostasis.
1: Tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing in your laboratory that's related to this field.
0: Well, we're very interested in understanding what makes the beta cell fail, both in early and advanced type 2 diabetes. And we look at a number of different aspects. We look at activation of some of these stress pathways that I alluded to earlier. We look at the activation of what we call ER stress pathways, which, if those are left unchecked, can actually lead to cell death and apoptosis and loss of beta cell mass. We're also very interested in understanding how key genes in the beta cell are regulated and how these processes become dysregulated in type 2 diabetes. And then we're very, very interested in the regulation of calcium homeostasis in the beta cell, and that's really what we're focusing our efforts on now is to understand how calcium, which we know plays a key role in insulin release, how that becomes the processes that regulate intracellular calcium, how those become dysregulated in type 2 diabetes.
1: Let's talk a little bit about ER stress. Can you tell us what that is? And is this something that happens in a lot of disease states, or is this specific just to diabetes?
0: Well, actually, it probably happens in many different disease states. And so essentially what ER stress is, the cell has a normal mechanism to deal with times when a lot of proteins may be delivered to the endoplasmic reticulum. So we know that the ER is important in chaperoning new proteins through And also helping fold new proteins and so if the ER sees a lot of new proteins that can't be processed then a whole cellular cascade will be initiated to stop new protein synthesis and stop delivery of new proteins to the ER so that the ones that are there can be dealt with appropriately this is a protective mechanism that should allow the cell to deal with a period of stress and then emerge at the other side okay but if the stress is not dealt with appropriately activation of ER stress cascades can actually lead to apoptosis or the turning on these cell death pathways. So you can imagine in diabetes, if you're asking the beta cell to secrete more and more and more insulin, insulin is the most prevalent protein produced by the beta cell. So a lot of insulin could be found in the ER. ER stress pathways get turned on. If that can't be dealt with appropriately, then you can actually lose beta cell mass if you can't deal with that ER stress.
1: And are there any treatments that look likely to come down the line that would help the cell deal with that?
0: Well, I think at the point where we are now, many of our existing therapies have been tested in animal models and and in cell models to see if you can induce ER stress and then see if any of our existing treatments actually can do anything about it. And in that regard, a number of different things have been shown to have some beneficial effects. But I think that that may be a potentially very attractive future therapy, something that directly targets ER stress, so that you can preserve cell function and cell survival. And you ask if that happens in other tissues, and it certainly does. It probably is happening at the insulin-sensitive tissues, like the liver, and maybe even the adipose tissue as well. So I think ER stress is a ubiquitous pathway that probably affects a lot of different cells in a lot of different disease states.
1: And tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with calcium regulation in diabetes.
0: We made an observation, uh, and others had observed this as well, that in advanced type 2 diabetes in certain animal models, that calcium homeostasis is impaired, such that the calcium level that you might see under basal conditions in the cytosol was actually increased. So we wanted to investigate further why that was happening. And what we found, and, and again some others had observed this as well, is that levels of this gene called sarcoendoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase, or CIRCA for short, were markedly downregulated in type 2 diabetes in the islet. And we also saw a loss of that protein as well, CIRCA protein. And so what CIRCA does is when the beta cell is stimulated with glucose, a number of cascades happen, and ultimately intracellular calcium goes up. And it's actually calcium that causes the insulin granules to come out of the beta cell to be exocytosed and secreted. So after a glucose stimulation, CERCA is very important in restoring that basal calcium level. So it takes calcium from the cytosol and puts it back into the ER. We know that if you don't have a normal amount of calcium in the ER, you can't really deal with ER stress. You can't deal with the production of new proteins. So that can lead to this ER stress cascade activation. And so we're really very interested in understanding why that gene and protein become so dysregulated and then also searching for ways that we might pharmacologically improve levels of CERCA, both at the transcript or mRNA level as well as the protein level in type 2 diabetes.
1: We've been talking with Dr. Carmela Evans-Molina of the Indiana University School of Medicine about type 2 diabetes and islet cell biology. Dr. Evans-Molina, thank you for being our guest.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on the Channel for Medical Professionals, ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And as always, thank you for listening.
0: You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.